0: everyone, this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. This is another one of our videos, podcasts for this morning. We had had, um, wanted to do it earlier at around 8.30, but uh, I wanted to get some more slides together. Um, As you know, the purpose of these podcasts is to be educational and to give you a deeper perspective on uh, extremely uh, interesting topics, sometimes controversial topics. Today's topic is genetically engineered foods or GMOs, and the question is, First of all, what are they and are they safe? Most of what I'm gonna be sharing with you here comes from my own uh, research. Uh, It's original research that we've done and we've also published. So I wanna take a little bit of time, first of all, to uh, give you sort of the larger perspective on uh, what's actually going on um, uh, with genetically engineered foods. And probably the first thing is to begin with what are they? People have heard the term GMOs, or genetically engineered foods, and in fact, they're used interchangeably. And um, most people don't know what they are. They do know something doesn't sound right about them because it sounds like they're sort of uh, done in a lab, which they are, and it doesn't feel right to a lot of people. And other people say they're absolutely safe. People are being paranoid. Um, But let me just share with you a slide here. Um, What is a GMO? You know, a GMO, first of all, is a genetically modified organism. And um, the term genetic engineering, uh, or genetically engineered foods, was also used to refer to um, GMOs. In Europe, they started with genetically engineered foods, which they said genetically modified organisms. And that term genetically modified organisms is used in the United States. However, some people started using the term GMOs to refer to any type of genetic modification and they created a confusion between, for example, natural, uh, natural plant breeding. For example, if you think about it, uh, for centuries or millennia, when we did farming, um, we bred animals um, or we bred different types of corn or different crops. Well, that was what we call sexual breeding, which means you actually bred the two plants, bred the two animals, sexual reproduction needed to take place. And that resulted in quote-unquote genetic modification. So for uh, a long time, people actually, uh, including major news papers like the New York Times, et cetera, would tell people, oh, don't worry about these genetically modified foods, referring to genetic engineering, which takes place in the lab. They're the same as genetic modification that takes place from natural plant breeding that's been going on for centuries. And this is where the confusion came in and and that's what I want to clear up. But going back to the slide, you know, in a genetically modified organism, you're actually taking genes from the DNA of one organism and putting it into the DNA of another organism. So, for example, you could take the DNA of a flounder, which is a fish, which maybe has, maybe there's a certain characteristic uh, in that DNA which gives it a very protective skin to protect it from the cold and stick it into the the dna of a tomato to make it more resistant to weather now that would never ever occur in nature meaning never would you see a a, a flounder having sex with a tomato at least i haven't seen one maybe you have um, obviously you may breed different kinds of tomatoes sexually um, but this is asexual which means without sex um, uh, genetic changes that are taking place in a lab environment. This cannot occur in nature, and I think that's probably the most important environment we need. To, and most important point we need to make is that uh, what we're talking about here is genetic changes that are taking place to an organism that occur in the laboratory environment. Uh, it doesn't occur in nature. So next time you hear someone saying, "Oh, don't worry, genetic modification is the same as natural plant breeding. We're just accelerating it," it's not true because this is occurring uh, in a laboratory environment, uh, very difficult to have a flounder and a a tomato have sex in the natural world. Um, The second thing I wanna walk you through is um, how do genetic modification take place? And what you're seeing here is you have a bacteria and you're taking the gene from this bacteria. So there's a DNA extraction isolation process that takes place. So you have a bacteria which has its own uh, string of genes. By the way, going back to basic biology, um, genes are pieces of DNA uh, which code for different types of characteristics of an organism. Um, so for example, a worm has around 20,000 uh, genes and we'll, ri- we'll shortly tell you that's the number of genes we have, number of genes. And different sections of the DNA, so considered as a big, this big long ladder, And different pieces of that DNA um, have um, code for different characteristics. Or for you, a section of DNA may code for the color of your eyes. Another section may code for the color of your skin, et cetera. But in genetic engineering, we're literally taking the DNA characteristics from one organism, bacteria, isolating it. And then we clone it, which means make copies of it. And then that is then cultured. And then stuck into another organism. Um, so those of you, uh, if you're watching the video and you don't need to, because I try to explain it, even if you're listening to a podcast, what we see here is DNA is extracted from a bacteria. It's cloned um, and then it's cultured, which means it's grown. And then pieces of that DNA are put into a plant. And and so that's, um, you know, where we're transforming or uh, taking a piece of DNA and transferring it to another uh, organism. Um, here are various examples of different kinds of genetically modified foods. Corn uh, is a genetically modified food, which means um, in that case a gene from a bacterium was taken and put into the corn. Soy, cotton, papaya, rice, uh, rapeseed, or what's known as canola oil, potatoes, tomatoes, dairy products, peas, and there are others, but these are the top, uh, top 10 commonly genetically modified foods. You know, so I'll repeat again, corn, soy, by the way, 97% of the soy in the United States is genetically modified. Cotton, papaya, rice, uh, canola, also known as rapeseed oil, potatoes, tomatoes, uh, various dairy products and peas. Why did companies, which are the big agrobiotech companies like Syngenta, uh, Monsanto, which is now part of Bayer, do genetic modification? To give you a high-level background on this, um, uh, a company like Monsanto, for example, by the way, Monsanto came out of the military industrial complex, which means out of war. They, uh, along with Dow, in the 60s, created a, I'll just come back to video here. They, along with Dow, created a a, um, a, a herbicide called Agent Orange, which was used to drop over vietnam to essentially kill the foliage so um uh the uh, the air force of the united states could better see their targets below so it's, it literally kills foliage it's an herbicide um they're herbicides um and and that's what um that's what agent orange was and they used to deliver it by air and drop a lot of it on the forest well when the vietnam war ended by the way a lot of that was also tested Believe it or not, on the island of Hawaii, it was used as an open air field. And there's a, a movie um, that I did that was produced by Pierce Brosnan, directed by his wife, Kelly Brosnan, called Poisoning Paradise, which I'm the main scientist describing a lot of what I'm going to describe to you here. Poisoning Paradise is a movie if you want to get a hold of it. But um, after Vietnam, uh, 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 they retooled themselves, which is essentially what that means is the the powers at monsanto said well we've created a way to drop herbicide and and kill foliage why don't we reuse this um uh in in the farming field because remember it's another they went, they did something in the in the wartime world can they make money in the civilian world so that resulted in them uh, creating um uh another product called glyphosate which has been in the news there has been a, a bunch of war, uh lawsuits on it Um, or what's commonly known as Roundup. Some of you may use this in your yard, uh, but they drop glyphosate from the air for factory farming. Uh, As small farms are being overtaken by large farms, large farms, um, the goal was, hey, let's farm thousands of acres and let's say you're growing corn or soy, weeds are gonna come come up and we will drop Roundup or glyphosate from the air. And that allowed um, Monsanto over a period of time to essentially get a monopoly on essentially uh, weed control on, on farms. But interesting enough, the weeds that were dying is what Monsanto's glyphosate or Roundup was doing. By the way, the way you spell glyphosate is G L Y P H O S A T E. Like glyphosate, G L Y P H O S A T E o-s-a-t-e that's glyphosate so as glyphosate was growing monsanto essentially built a monopoly on this pesticide Um, they were also noticing that there was a yield uh, lowering of the corn or the soy so on the one hand now they had a monopoly on every major factory farm using glyphosate but they noticed yields were going down so what they did was they said could we create let's say a version of soy or corn that could withstand their own herbicide um, and uh, and not get killed by their herbicide increase the yield so what they did was they took the gene from a bacterium in the case of soy and they stuck it in to the soy seed and that created roundup ready soy rrs roundup ready soy and um, and and that process and they did a similar thing um, uh, with corn etc but what they what, what it allowed them to do was um, own the seed because now it's a genetically modified organism they could own that seed and they could essentially license the ownership of that seed to the farmer so if you were a farmer you're growing soy you're using Roundup you want to increased yield you also bought Monsanto's Roundup Ready soy seeds, by the way, which had a license for a year, which means you couldn't save your seeds; you had to buy the seeds every year. Um, very profitable for them, right? On the one hand, you own the pesticide, and you also own the seed side. Um, and and uh, so this is sort of the background of the the uh, how all of this came to be. Uh, one of the uh, uh, pro- uh, ways that I got involved in it. Uh, my PhD is in biological engineering. Some of you may know that I have four degrees from MIT. Just to give you my uh, credentials, um, You know, I came to MIT in 1981. My undergraduate degree is in electrical engineering and computer science. I've always been deeply interested in medicine and biology. In fact, as a 14-year-old kid, while I was inventing the first email system in the world at Rutgers Medical School, I was also doing medical uh, research applying computing to um, biology and medicine. Um, So I had always wanted to combine both of these fields. When I came to MIT, I was deeply interested in in medicine, but found that the uh, way that we looked at the body was almost as parts. We didn't consider it as a whole human being. So I went in and out of MIT doing various degrees in engineering, because at least in engineering, you have to look at the whole thing. So uh, I have a degree uh, in electrical engineering. I went out and started a company, came back to MIT, did another degree in the field of scientific visualization out of the MIT Media Lab. In media arts and sciences. Some of you may or may not know I also uh, I'm a big lover of art I do a lot of art myself uh, so I have a master's in that field but concomitantly I also did another master's in the field of mechanical engineering in what's called applied mechanics to in the area of wave propagation to understand how waves move through materials be it sound waves all different kinds of very interesting uh, waves that move through material and that was the basis of my master's thesis went out, started some more companies, came back to MIT in 2003. And the reason I came back, it's best expressed in the slide that relates to what we're gonna talk about with GMOs, is in 2003, some of you may know, the uh, field of biology was undergoing a revolution, why? As you can see from this slide, what was occurring was, in 1993, the Human Genome Project had started, and the purpose of the Human Genome Project was, could we actually Uh, map out every gene uh, in the human DNA. Uh, When this project started, we didn't really have an understanding of how many genes uh, were in the human DNA. We thought that we had a lot of genes, and the reason we thought we had a lot of genes, and I'll explain what I mean by lot, is we knew a worm, a nematode, had around 19-20,000 genes. So you can see from the slide when the Genome Project started, after various approximations, uh, people thought we had about 100,000 genes, at least five times more than a lowly, quote-unquote, a lowly worm. And as you can see, as the Human Genome Project proceeded, by 2003 we weren't finding all of these genes, um, we were uh, 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 essentially, lowering our estimates every year, and it turns out we only have about 19 to 20,000 genes, as you can see from the slide. So this flipped biology on its head, because in fact, plants, corn, uh, actually have more genes. Believe it or not, that's what's fascinating. Plants actually have probably 50, 60, sometimes double the number of genes that we do. Um, so uh, what this led into was people recognize that we are not our genes. Because if we only have the same number of genes as a worm, why are we more complicated? Again, basic biology genes give rise to proteins. Those proteins actually interact back with the genes to create what are called molecular pathways. And you get a lot more complexity than thought of. So complexity is not a function of the number of genes. Complexity is a function of the molecular pathways. So what happened was biology went into a very, very different uh, space and that space was recognizing that maybe what we needed to do was we need to look at the, the body more holistically and at this time uh, Peter Hunter who was working between um, Auckland and, and, uh, and, um, and Oxford and he was working what's called a human physiome project which is could you mathematically understand the whole human body which meant it's not just the genes as you see on the On the left side here, it's not just genes that give rise to the human body, but genes give rise to proteins. Proteins um, interact with each other, create different cellular function and and, uh, various functions within the cell, and different cells uh, compose tissues. Tissues then compose organs. Uh, Just to give you an idea, we have about 12 major organs. We have four different um, tissue types. For example, in the heart, Uh, there's around 300 different kinds of cells, and uh, we probably have 100,000 plus proteins uh, or more. Right now, I think we've mapped out uh, probably around uh, 50 to 100,000 of those proteins, but they're probably about a half a million proteins. So the idea was this is a much more complex problem. And at that time, um, at, uh, in, in the world at that time, the National Science Foundation, so in 2003, put forward a grand challenge, which was could you mathematically model the whole cell? So if you look at the cell as a very complex uh, reactor of different chemical reactions, could you mathematically model this? And um, my advisor uh, at MIT, Forbes Dewey, Professor Forbes Dewey, invited me to come back and he said, Shiva, you should finish up your PhD. There's this field where computing and biology can come together. Um, you love biology and medicine and you have a expertise in computing. So that's when I decided to come back to MIT. And the way I looked at this problem was instead of looking at it in a, you know, in this very large way because you can think about the millions of types of reactions or combinations that are going on in the body it would be very hard to mathematically model this in fact people were getting away from this field even in 2003 because they weren't able to model more than maybe 50 reactions and my approach is why not break down the larger thing into smaller manageable reactions which we call biological pathways and we knew some of them were becoming mathematical models and why not treat the models as almost individual little subsystems, each of which could be owned and maintained by different people and I would write a technology platform that I ended up calling Cytosolve, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E which would allow a decentralized way of integrating large-scale molecular pathway models and that was the development of Cytosolve which was between 2003, my PhD work, and by the way This was a basis of my PhD work, which I published in 2007. I went on to uh, publish a major paper sharing my findings in the development of this new invention. Uh, Some of you may know uh, email, what I invented in 1978, was really a large scale system also, also to integrate the various parts of the office communication system. Similarly, Cytosol was a way to integrate the many, many much more complicated parts of the intercellular communication system. So it allowed this very powerful way to integrate. Um, This was published in various journals uh, from IEEE to Springer. Um, And we published these between 2007 to 12 to validate in the scientific world that what we had done was noteworthy and important. We put it out for peer review. In fact, a major article came out in IEEE called Creating Accurate Models of Life, in which Cytosol was featured. I also then started applying this to real problems. In 2012, we spin out we spun out Cytosolve as a new company. And at that time, an article came out in Nature, one of the most esteemed magazines, saying if you're gonna really uh, solve cancer, you have to use combination therapy, which means combine different drugs. An individual drug has various side effects. Maybe we could lower the toxicity. And uh, my thesis work was featured in that very important scientific paper. I didn't know any of the authors, so it wasn't some inside job. So we raised uh, money, uh, spun out a company. We actually used Cytosoft to discover a multi-combination therapy for pancreatic cancer. Uh, I went on to publish various papers with with my colleagues at MIT in the fields of nitric oxide and cardiovascular research, work with the US pharmacopoeia to support uh, the research in multi-ingredient therapy of supplements. And we, in fact, as I mentioned, got an allowance by the FDA to take a combination drug that we had discovered for cancer out to market, um, or out to clinical testing. Um, Also, we did some very uh, recent research with University of Southern California, the Zilka Institute of Neurological Research, showing how you could use cytosol to uh, integrate the various mechanisms of neurovascular disease and show commonality. So bottom, the reason I'm sharing that with you was there's a very powerful tool that we developed, which allowed um, people to really uh, start using CytoSoft to understand at the scientific level, the mechanisms, how things were taking place. And Cytosol is a company now um, uh, which uh, is uh, used for research, which is used for substantiating nutraceutical products, which is actually used for discovering new combinations. Um, but getting back to uh, genetic engineering, what happened was the way I got involved in, in uh, Genetic engineering wasn't, or uh, 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 foods, is that um, uh, someone just sent me a, a message here, which I'll respond to. Uh, one of the important things that came here was I was walking down the halls of MIT, and I uh, there's this magazine called the MIT Technology Review, which is one of the prestigious magazines, in fact. Um, many years ago um, the work that I had done for automatically analyzing email was featured on the front page so it's a pretty big thing to get featured in there but this article I saw in there which said front page article, says buy fresh buy GMOs and uh, and this was essentially in my view it caught me because it was making fun of the buy fresh buy local movement and I've uh, been a big proponent of you know eating organic local foods I think Um, for various reasons so when I saw this I was a little uh, concerned what this was about it almost looked like an ad for something and as I read it the article was really about how the entire world needs genetically modified foods or we're all screwed that's where this really starts at that all the poor um, you know brown and uh, black people in Africa and India need genetically modified foods Um, and as I went through this some of it didn't make sense and so, what I wanted to do was really understand what uh, what was going on here, and I recognized that there was a, uh, a debate going on in the world. There were people who were pro GMOs, a lot of the big agrobiotechs, some scientists, the, your typical academics, um, and then there was a non-GMO movement. People, uh, essentially, civilians saying this doesn't make sense. They didn't like it, and I really wanted to, um, you know, go beyond this left and right or pro or non and that's really um, part of you know uh, why many of you know i ran as an independent because i felt both parties essentially take every issue and they split it into pro or against and they never really want to go for the truth and as a scientist what i'm interested in finding out what the truth is and the truth is actually much harder to find out than having an opinion a lot of people try to have opinions uh, like you see here and the idea was what is actually going on could we really understand this and as I started doing the research the issue is is there a middle ground to this and I noticed that RT which is Russian TV there's a a sometimes the US News um, at this point was basically telling everyone that GMOs are absolutely fine not to worry don't worry genetic engineering is the same as natural plant breeding in fact writers for the New York Times were saying this and that didn't seem right because it seemed As a biologist, you're doing essentially asexual reproduction of genes. Very different than actually, uh, you know, animals having sex or plants having sexual reproduction. Um, And this article caught me around this time. um, Was, um, as I was looking, it said, Study Reveals GMO Corn to be Highly Toxic. And the article actually talked about, and this was an RT, um, which I have a lot of respect for because they cover stuff that we in the United States don't cover. And the article basically... Uh, went on to say that people were believing, and I'll read you through, the claims, that there's no difference between GMO, non-GMO, corn, are false, says Honey Koto Hads. She was floored after reading the study. Essentially, um, the, the notion was that don't worry, a, a, a genetically modified food is no different than a non-genetically modified food, that there's absolutely no difference, um, that GE foods are the same as non-GE foods. And so that made me wonder, how was um, uh, a genetically engineered food being allowed into the market? Like what actually uh, goes on here? And as I probe that, the, 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 the question is, what is the difference between, let's say, a genetically engineered tomato and a non or an organic tomato? So you have the non-GMO tomato and the GMO tomato. And the question was, what is the difference? And, and it almost... Um, felt like, and I, again, I'm, I'm sort of going back in history here, that people had put forward the idea, of, don't worry, they're the same. And that's what uh, was being brought up by this GMO corn people had found, which had high levels of formaldehyde. Uh, farmers had found a bunch of corn where they measured it was much higher levels of uh, formaldehyde than the non-GMO corn. And no one really knew why. So you could say that, and the non-GMO or the pro-GMO people are saying these people are just alarmists. Um, there's nothing really here. Um, they're crackpots, and and the and the people who are being called crackpots were saying we actually have found some. So anyway, there's this debate. Um, and so as you look into this, you find out that uh, the real issue is what is the difference between a non-GMO and a GMO corn? It's like asking what's the difference between David Banner, the Hulk, and the Hulk, you know, when he transforms. Um, And as I went into this, I found out that um, around 2000, the Food and Drug Administration, which was the the foods commissioner at that time was a guy called Michael Taylor, who, interesting enough, was a former head of science policy at Monsanto. And he had put forward the uh, idea that in order to get genetically engineered foods out there, um, let's have a guideline. And he selected this guideline Called substantial equivalence. Um, substantial equivalence um, was a guideline from 1976 that President Gerald Ford had had put forward to accelerate innovation of medical devices. So, uh, to just give you some background here, if I were an inventor and I created a really great stethoscope or a new type of measurement device uh, for uh, to be used in the hospitals, I had to get that approved by the FDA. That process would typically take around seven, eight, nine years to go through an approval process. And let's say after I got it approved, I changed one little thing. Maybe I changed a knob color, change the color of it in some way, or some some other minor modification, which really didn't affect the overall function or the safety. The issue was um, uh, uh, that person literally had to go through that again 7 year 9 year process so what Gerald Ford said to accelerate American innovation um, that there would be a po- policy called substantial equivalence as the word means if the medical product A which you did a itsy need tweak to was same as the the new medical product you did not have to um, go through the long 7 year process you could fast track it and in this process of substantial equivalence Uh, It was part of, this is the actual document at the time, the uh, 510K program for evaluating substantial equivalence. The policy was that you as the the reporter uh, or the creator of this technology do self-reporting and um, there's a safety consultation done by the FDA based on what you give them. So when it came to GMOs, Uh, Michael Taylor said we should use the same policy. Now just to be clear by by substantial equivalence um, let me just go over here, the manufacturer should clearly identify the technology characteristics for each uh, device, in this case a medical device individually, so you get to choose what are the characteristics of the device that or the system that you want to compare to your ITSI change and you decide if they're equivalent or not Plus or minus 20%. So if you had a stethoscope which was black and the new stethoscope was white, obviously the stethoscope has various parts, but if you just said, I want to use the color characteristic, you would say, hey, only this has changed relative to many other kinds of things. And you could get that allowed. So bottom line is this was self-reporting. That means the manufacturer selected the criteria. So when it came to GMOs, Michael Taylor said, Why don't we allow the manufacture of genetically engineered organisms to use substantial equivalents. Now forget the fact that a organism like a tomato is vastly probably a billion times more complex than a stethoscope or a device. Think about all the interconnections, all the genes or the proteins, but the idea was if you could simply inform the FDA, by the way the FDA took a hands-off approach, but you could for example take the nutritional value, the protein, um, the uh, you know the fats or oils um, you simply tell uh, the FDA that there's a equivalent. So if you and I, for example, created a a um, if you and I created for example a new company to create a genetically engineered blueberry, um, we simply tell the FDA in our own labs we did the test comparing the color of the genetically engineering or color, let's say the size, the water content, three characteristics with the non genetically engineered one, the organic one and they're about the same. And when that goes to the FDA, the FDA essentially issues a safety consultation letter saying, thank you, Bill and Bob, for letting us know that you've done this work. They don't even want to see the data. There's no even requirement. So I just want to make this clear, based on that policy of substantial equivalence, the the product could go to market. It's very, very loosey-goosey, all based on self-reporting. So in fact, there's no standards for doing lab uh, research on the GM versus non-GM. There's no standards for distinguishing the material difference between GM and non-GM at the regulatory level. It's all very hands-off by the FDA following this equivalence uh, model of substantial equivalence. So when all of this was going on, um, I as a systems biologist with my PhD training with the development of Cytosol said, could we actually identify characteristics that were the characteristics one should use. So for example, we took soy and, um, and what was going on at this time was uh, we got in touch with a a, a esteemed professor of plant sciences by the name of Don Huber out of Purdue. And um, the hypothesis, remember in science, you see this observation, people are reporting there was a difference in this case with the corn. We wanted to find out what was that material difference. Um, Huber gave us an insight, so our, which was that that the genetically engineered soy was engineered from the bacterium to resist the herbicide glyphosate, and by augmenting the soy plant with another immune system. So, so let me repeat again. So remember the soy plant. By the way, 97% of the soy in the United States. Is genetically engineered I'll repeat that again 97% only 3% organic so Monsanto owns roundup ready soy which means a soy that can withstand their own pesticide and the way that they did this was they took a bacterium and they inserted it into the organic soy plant and the hypothesis was was that new soy plant was modified so it could withstand the their own herbicide and um, we were given an insight by Huber that this was done um, which could affect the system of the C1 metabolism pathway. What is C1 metabolism? So what we did was um, we said, let's take the soy plant. And by the way, the C1 metabolism pathway, which is not only in soy, but it's in every plant, fungi and bacteria. It's a biological system. It's a series of chemical reactions. So C1, capital C, number one, metabolism, is a large scale molecular reaction. It's almost like an engineering system that shows up in soy plants, it shows up in in, uh, not only plants, bacteria, and fungi, bacteria even in your gut. And so we said, could we actually use Cytosol to explore the literature, to actually understand all the molecular mechanisms, which means all the chemical reactions involved in C1 metabolism. Um, So the C1 pathway, just to give you an idea, it it, it involves a transfer of carbon units and it's vital to the metabolism of a cell. So C1 pathway in plants includes the removal uh, uh, or detoxification of formaldehyde, which is a toxic intermediate in photosynthesis. So when photosynthesis takes place, formaldehyde is actually produced in the plants, but through a detoxification process, within the c1 metabolic pathway uh, using a very important antioxidant called glutathione um, using glutathione the formaldehyde is removed so when photosynthesis takes place um, c1 metabolism is involved um, and at a high level you can think about formaldehyde is produced as an intermediary toxin and our the plants nature is an amazing way of removing that toxin using glutathione through a process so we said, could we really ex- explore this um, pathway? Uh, first of all, understand what is involved, um, how this gets broken down, and the process. So uh, we literally went through the literature, you know, using Google and PubMed and ProQuest and ScienceDirect. These are all sort of publicly accessible tools. And we went through a whole process to find various articles that were involved in there. We looked across all different plants, Um, and you know corn had a lot written in its soy but we knew that the commonality was a c1 uh, metabolism pathway relative to this we found over 11,000 scientific papers um, and uh, in those scientific papers they related to close to 6,529 different experiments across 184 scientific institutions across 23 countries so the point is that we just didn't take cherry pick one paper. With Cytosol, this very powerful technology, we were able to, and I'm showing you sort of a funnel diagram here, went across over 11,597 papers to identify 6,529 experiments in 184 laboratories in 23 countries. No one had ever done something extensive. No one could say that we were cherry picking. From those experiments, we identified various molecular reactions, like solving a big jigsaw puzzle. Each of those papers have little pieces of the C1 metabolism pathway in them. And then from that, we extracted those pathways, and then we started mathematically modeling each one of them using Cytosolve. That resulted in data, which we then used to publish a series of papers, which I'm gonna walk you through. And the net of what we showed was that the genetic engineering of soy actually disrupts a major molecular mechanisms across the system. And if the FDA had required real testing, if the FDA had required that they have real criteria and they used the criteria of glutathione, um, which, uh, which is a very important molecule, as I said, that we discovered that glutathione levels are about 250% less in the genetically engineered version of soy versus the uh, the the organic soy, and in fact, uh, this we showed through the mechanistic modeling of cytosol, and then we also validated because we were fortunate to find work that was done actually where people grew the soy plant in a greenhouse, and our results matched. So that's following the scientific method. But I'll get more in detail. So we did a series. So the first four series of papers, which I'm going to walk you through, was really done to. Uh, you know, we did it one by one by one because we didn't want to get attacked that we were just doing haphazard research. So we did it in a very methodical way. As I mentioned, we went through this eleven thousand five hundred ninety-seven papers written on C one metabolism. Out of that, we identified uh, from those six thousand five hundred ninety-seven experiments across those papers a relevant set of around two hundred sixteen um, papers, which gave us sixty-two studies, and we and we discovered three important major mechanisms involved in C1 metabolism. Um, I don't want to bore you but at a high level again uh, you can listen to this on podcast or video. On the video I have some very nice diagrams if you want to follow through but uh, I'll also describe it. But think about an engine um, and this engine is a C1 metabolism pathway. The engine become uh, starts at any point um, where you have something called methionine biosynthesis where methionine is synthesized. That leads to what's called the methylation cycle. And in this process, formaldehyde is produced. And there's a third cycle called formaldehyde detoxification where the formaldehyde is detoxed. So you have this very nice three-part process, methionine biosynthesis, methylation, and formaldehyde. Again, these three parts form the C1 metabolism pathway. And just to be let you know, this occurs in all plants, all fungi, like in mushrooms, molds, But it also occurs in our own gut bacteria and bacteria. So we um, did this and we published this in a a, a journal, in an open source journal. And these were, um, by the way, the GMO research, just like the climate change research, is so politicized that uh, we decided to choose open source journals. Um, The major journals have already taken a position they're safe. Uh, in fact, just to let you know, Randy Schekman, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine, who used to publish in the major journals, and I publish in them, he talked about how the major journals there's insider trading. And when it comes to controversial things, they don't like to publish you. So we went to peer review, open source, which means we can publish it to the community versus it being held back and manipulated. But what you can see here is the formaldehyde detoxification pathway involves various reactions um, involving a very important thing called glutathione so glutathione is extremely involved in detoxing formaldehyde if you do a search on google on glutathione you will see that it's called the mother of all antioxidants the methionine biosynthesis pathway um, involves the use of formate which is a product of formaldehyde um, and the methylation cycle again we we documented these in in a very um, uh, detailed way and this was published um, in, in in the first journal um, the second journal we uh, did was, um, I'm sorry, uh, this was published in, um, uh, I'm sorry, after we published that in, the, in, in a journal of agricultural science, the second paper we published was now we had all the reactions mapped out. We said, let's use cytosol now to mathematically model it. And this was published in uh, the journal, uh, American Journal of Plant Sciences, and it's called in silico modeling. In silico means on the computer, in vitro by the means. Test tube in vivo means um, in, in, you know, in an actual body like of, of, of an animal where you do testing. But here we're doing testing in the computer because we've mapped out all the reactions. The reactions are invariant. And through this process, we took this three-part process and we went through all the reactions. And because Cytosol is this proven capability we had developed since 2003 to 7 out of my PhD work, tested for another five years, we were able to use this very powerful engine, Cytosolve, to mathematically model um, the, the normal case of what plants do. And uh, lo and behold, Cytosol predicts what you see in the normal world, uh, meaning that glutathione levels in a normal um, condition stay at standard levels, which means normal plants, non-genetically engineered plants. Um, glutathione levels maintain um, uh, you know, in a steady state, which means they don't go up or down appreciably, they don't get depleted or accumulate. And similarly, formaldehyde is produced and it's evanescently, which means temporarily occurs but then goes away. So these two things um, that we publish, the mathematical outputs from cytosol match what people were seeing in vitro in other studies, which means glutathione is maintained and formaldehyde is created and it's taken away. So that was our second paper that we published in the American Journal of Plant Sciences. And we did sensitivity analysis to show under various conditions, we were still getting the same process of formaldehyde being detoxified. Um, When we looked at this C1 metabolism pathway, uh, we also recognize um, that plants also undergo uh, uh, what is known as stressors. So remember, the first research we did was to map out all the pathways that was published in the Journal of Agricultural Sciences, then we used that data uh, to then do the modeling and and that was published in the American Journal of Plant Sciences where we nicely showed that our model was able to predict what nature actually shows. So concurrence between the model and the actual observation. So that's what makes a model real. By the way, we're not seeing that with climate change. The models are not uh, showing what's going on in nature. Here are the measurements are actually being validated. So the next step we did was we said, okay, the C1 metabolism pathway is also involved when plants undergo stress. So for example, um, that's called oxidative stress. So we said there was other research showing that when a plant undergoes stress, um, that uh, it may actually lower its glutathione level um, because it's under stress and it's under oxidative stress, more formaldehyde may be produced. So it needs more glutathione antioxidant to detoxify itself. So you can think about that if you're under a lot of stress, research shows you produce more reactive oxygen species because you're undergoing stress. And that's why it's probably good to take of your health and take more antioxidant. So similarly, we went through the same process, went back to the literature, wanted to understand the mechanism of oxidative stress as we had done it for C1 metabolism. So here we... Discovered various pathways involved in oxidative stress, lipid peroxidation, which leads to reactive oxygen species, which then uh, interacts with ascorbate-glutathione pathway. Essentially, these three other pathways that are involved in um, the process of oxidative stress. Uh, again, this isn't plants. As you can see, glutathione is needed uh, to take um, to address the reactive oxygen species, ROS it's called, when you have oxidative stress. So again, we modeled that and we interconnected. So we independently did the research in oxidative stress, validated that, and we said, okay, now you take the normal case of C1 metabolism, and what happens when you interconnect these two systems? Again, Cytosolve allows us to do this because we can literally do like Lego block building. And again, we went back to the mathematics you know, understood all the chemical reactions, and lo and behold, we again see our mathematical model predict what's going on in nature. We see um, as um, the plant is undergoing oxidative stress, by the way, which could occur in a drought or pollution, uh, what you notice happens is that the plant depletes its level of glutathione. So that means glutathione goes down from its um, uh, steady state level to a new level, and similarly, what happens as a result of that is as you would think, formaldehyde accumulates because now you don't have enough glutathione because a plant is dealing with stress. There's not enough formaldehyde to do the detoxification process. So let me just be clear on that. Just uh, is that when a plant's under stress, or when you're under stress, this is why it's important to take care of your bodies or uh, when you're under stress, is that your uh, glutathione antioxidant levels drop to take, uh, take care of the stress and you might be taking away the glutathione from other processes and the plant that's what's actually happening the C1 metabolism process is depleted of glutathione for formaldehyde accumulates now the good news is that for plants droughts um, obviously don't take forever and if they did the plant would die but if they occur temporarily the plants able to come back so you have a temporary dysfunction of uh, formaldehyde or lower glutathione depletion. So that's what uh, that research showed. And we, again, tested it across different conditions. We did sensitivity analysis, as you can see. We consistently see glutathione level going up, but we see the accumulation of formaldehyde. Um, And that uh, uh, was published in, uh, that was our fourth paper we published, which says, do GMOs accumulate formaldehyde? Um, and disrupt molecular systems equilibria. Systems biology may provide answers. Um, And in this paper, we asked the question, um, does genetic engineering do perhaps what oxidative stress does? That was a question that we asked. So we knew, again, from paper one, that molecular mechanisms of C1 metabolism. From paper two, we had understood how genetic engineering um, or, or how uh, oxidative stress, which means when a plant's, uh, I'm sorry, paper two was where we did the mathematical modeling. Paper three is we understood with modeling what happens when oxidative stress takes place to a plant. That And we showed there that the normal levels of glutathione level go down and formaldehyde accumulates. In paper four, we said, uh, now could we use the results of paper one, two, and three? were essentially building a very nice foundation here to understand this phenomenon. Could we actually understand what happens when we did the genetic engineering? And this led us to really understand what is the difference between soy and non-GMO soy. And as we, again, we went back to the literature, there's a lot of other scientists who've already done great work. Um, We found another 107 papers. Out of that, we found 34 relevant papers with 11 different studies, which showed us four major differences between genetically engineered uh, soy and non-genetically engineered soy. In fact, these research, um, researchers showed that four enzymes were at higher levels, catalase, superoxide dismutase, glutathione reductase, and ascorbate peroxidase, um, and one reactive oxygen species, hydrogen uh, peroxide. So basically they said that, that the genetic engineering was perturbing those five chemicals. Now, remember, those five chemicals I just said also show up in the C1 metabolism pathways So that we had published in paper one and two. So what we had was the puzzle was starting to come together that genetic engineering was actually not doing something. It wasn't harmless, that it was actually affecting um, uh, chemical um, uh, levels in the plant. So let me repeat that again. But these papers showed, again, these are done by other researchers, independent of us, that when you did the genetic engineering process, that it raised and affected, perturbed, disturbed the chemical levels of four other chemicals which, were involved in, which are involved in C1 metabolism. So, so we had the aha moment where we said, look, why don't we take what their findings were, plug it in to the models that we had, And that's essentially what we did. So what we did was we said, okay, genetic modification. We had the oxidative stress pathways. And we we notice here, if you um, look, is that there are, uh, in the glutathione pathway, APX and GR. APX is, by the way, ascorbate peroxidase. And GR is glutathione reductase were being affected. So in the glutathione pathway of plants from genetic engineering, two important chemicals were being disturbed. And we also notice that the catalase, the SOD, and the H2O2, uh, SODs, um, uh, the sulfur, um, just to show you, it's the superoxide dismutase, the um, APX, which is ascorbate, I'm sorry, the catalase, and the hydrogen peroxide, three other chemicals were being affected in the ROS pathway, the reactive oxygen species pathway. So I think from a layman standpoint, that genetic engineering wasn't not doing anything. It was affecting the levels of other species, five chemical species. So we took those levels that were reported by other researchers in wet lab experiments and we plugged it into Cytosol and we plugged that all together in one big computation because remember we built this up very slowly, paper one, paper two, paper three, and paper four was this paper we showed was that genetic engineering was actually doing something very similar to oxidative stress? Formaldehyde levels were going up; they were accumulating, and we also noticed, uh, unlike the non-GMO case where formaldehyde was being created and 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 cleaned up, in the in the in the GMO soy, formaldehyde levels were accumulating and glutathione levels were depleting, very much like. Uh, What we saw in the oxidative stress case. So very different than the non-GMO organic case. Glutathione levels maintained, but here glutathione levels were being depleted. And in fact, we noticed that they were going to a different level. It's almost like the plant was under constant stress. So to, to summarize, these four papers showed that genetic engineering does disturb the original state of the plant and puts it into a new mode of depleted glutathione levels what we found was around 250 percent difference in glutathione and formaldehyde accumulates that is so our view was that if substantial equivalence had been applied to those two criteria they would have been significantly different and maybe would have raised red flags but the, the bottom line is the fda doesn't really require any reporting it's all self-reporting and what we had discovered here was if we apply systems biology, if we apply um, cytosol, you can actually discover what should be the chemical criteria. Right now the model is Monsanto chooses whatever criteria they want which may have no relevance to really distinguish the difference between a GMO and a non-GMO. Now when we published this work we published four papers, we would basically shown that genetic engineering uh, the g- genetically engineered soy was vastly different if you use the criteria of glutathione and formaldehyde than the non-genetically engineered soy and this created a almost like a, a bomb went off in the pro-GMO community and we said in our paper look we're not pro or anti-GMO we just wanted to find out what's going on. Um, a researcher at the chairman of the Horticultural Institute at University of Florida public university which are tax dollars Support started attacking me personally said I didn't invent email um, Calling me all sorts of names Um, And more importantly he never attacked any of our really detailed research didn't attack the chemistry didn't attack the equations None of that Um, And in his attack he kept saying I'm an independent researcher. I'm not paid by Monsanto Um, several about a year later and he said, you know, these guys need to prove their mathematical models, not knowing that our mathematical models are actually based on actual experiments. We're not like making up any of these equations. And uh, interesting enough, a group out in Florida, uh, sorry, out in California, called U.S. Right to Know, had did a FOIA on this researcher, Kevin Folta, um, because um, Florida University of Florida is a, a private—I mean, not a private, a public university. 4,000 emails came out. And I was in India at the time doing a, 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 a debate on GMO and non-GMO between agricultural students. I was facilitating it. And at the, a few days after I finished that debate on the front page of the New York Times, it came out that Kevin Folta, um, in his emails, it was revealed that he was actually a spokesman for Monsanto. He'd received a check for around $25,000. So Folta was exposed. But we actually wanted to do further research to further validate our work because that's what scientists do. You're never satisfied. And that resulted, I'm going to go back to the science here, that resulted in a very fortunate case. And by the way, this was covered by major media, our research. It went viral all over the world. Um, A lot of the mainstream US media didn't cover it because they were essentially supporting the old thesis that natural plant breeding is the same as genetic engineering. A lot of these people need to learn science. Um, we, in fact, got statements from um, scientists, hundreds of scientists and MDs supported our research. They signed off on a petition that we should, that the, um, uh, the FDA really should relook at this entire process and guideline. We got very fortunate, which led to our final and fifth paper, that there was research done by a group in Leeds in, in the United Kingdom, where they had actually grown the soy plant in a greenhouse and the organic and the non-organic. Remember, our research had predicted from all of their integration of the mathematics that that all the integration of the mathematics had predicted that the glutathione levels in a soy plant would be 250% less if it was genetically engineered Monsanto and 250% more if it was an organic. And these researchers, which I'm gonna share with you, actually had grown the soy plants in a greenhouse and they had come across something fascinating. They also found very similar levels. This was published in Plant Physiology. And we then took that research and we did the comparison. And what we found was they had, and this was published in, um, again, in the uh, American Journal, I believe, of Plant Sciences. Uh, This was our paper that said, in silico analysis and in vivo results concur, which means our mathematical models and the wet lab, in vivo means in the plant concur, on glutathione depletion in glyphosate-resistant GMO soy, that's Monsanto soy, or Roundup Ready soy, advancing a systems biology fa- framework for safety assessment standards. And I'll just show you what the results we showed. We showed, see, the they had found out the glutathione ratio levels in organic was 9.9, and in the transgenic, Roundup Ready, RR, was 3.7. So that's the actual lab experiments. And look at what we predicted very close We predicted 9.75 or 9.749 and 3.9. So this basically showed that we understood the mechanisms why this was taking place. So beyond the wet lab experiment, we actually know why this is taking place. And the why is important because that's science. When genetic engineering of soy takes place, the C1 metabolism pathway is disturbed. Various molecules get disturbed. That disturbance leads to an oxidative stress type state and the, and, the, and the plant is essentially under constant oxidative stress. And based on that oxidative stress, it uh, has lower levels of glutathione, higher levels of formaldehyde. And I would argue that the GMO, genetically engineered soy, is actually a weaker plant and this will be a discussion of a future podcast in the interest of time. But many of the genetically engineered um, seeds are now coated with neonicotinoids. Neonicotinoids protect that seed from being attacked by soil organisms. Well, why do you need neonicotinoids? By the way, neonicotinoids are a nerve agent which destroy the bees. So what we're seeing is, A, you took a organic soy plant, then you hit it with weed killer, glyphosate, and then you produce a genetically engineered version of the original soy plant because your weed killer was killing that. And then that new plant is has lower levels of uh, um, glutathione and it's a weaker plant and now you coat it with neonicotinoids which are essentially affecting the bees. So this entire process, what I can tell you from a system standpoint, it's not politics, it's science. The science clearly shows that we don't have, at minimum, worst case, best case, we don't have safety assessment standards for genetically engineered foods. So are GMOs safe or not? issues we don't know and as far as we don't know we shouldn't in my view there should be a moratorium on genetically engineered foods and the data also shows that the poor black people in Africa and the poor brown people in India it's not genetically engineered foods they need, they need more irrigation they need more tools the farmers need more education that's what's really needed and in fact the destruction of the soil has taken place because of pesticides so, anyway, I hope this was valuable. Uh, I don't know if there's any questions coming in. Let me scroll down for com- comments. Uh, people said, uh, uh, FOLTA, outstanding presentation. Thank you. Oh, no bad for the bees. Colony collapse disorder. Yeah. So, I think the point I want to make here is the climate change. Look, I... People may... You may consider me a lefty or a left winger for going against Monsanto, but I'm a scientist. But when I also... Expose the failure of the Paris Accords and the fact that CO2, um, associating, demonizing CO2 as a thing that's ca- causing um, climate change, which is a whole nother discussion, which will which we've talked about, which we can talk about, doesn't also correlate. The data, the models don't work. Our models work. We don't understand why, and we validate it. The climate change models do not work. And in fact, I think the climate change Um, scare is actually taking away from the bigger real green issues of what's going on with the bees what's going on with pollution in the ocean, clean air, clean food and we're forgetting about that these are certainties that our research shows, other research shows so if we want to really be green let's go back into organic foods let's go back into locally grown foods let's put a moratorium on GMOs because there are no safety assessment standards anyway this is Dr. Shiva Idre. I hope you've enjoyed this